Cinematary listeners. This is your host, Zach Dennis, with a quick bonus episode. So, I'm sure most of you have heard us talk a little bit about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash cinematary, where we uh, try to come up with some, you know, different content so that people who are fans of the podcast or want to help support what we're doing over at Cinematary can do so and earn some nice incentives for that. Right now, we have a special series over on Patreon. We call it Film Theory and Chill, and it's kind of a way to dig into these very weighty uh, topics in film theory, but kind of make it a little bit more accessible. Uh, help broaden our own horizons and just use it as kind of a conduit to uh, spark discussion about what we're thinking about in movies today. Uh, On the front half, we do that. And on the back half, we just talk about whatever, uh, whatever comes to mind. And uh, Film Theory and Chill has seemed to be pretty popular so far with our patrons. And so I wanted to show this to the regular Cinematary feed people. Uh, This is our most recent episode, or at least the clip of it. I'll, I'll uh, let you guys kind of listen to it, but this is the first half of the film theory and chill. There's no chill in this, but we uh, looked at Andre Bazin's The Evolution of Film Language. Uh, this is myself, Nathan Smith, and Andrew Swafford talking a little bit about Bazin's uh, very, very important text in terms of kind of film theory and film criticism. Uh, I, I know that it was kind of uh, good that we were able to get to this so quickly in this series but again if you'd like to support our patreon all of the funds that uh, are donated to our patreon page go to supporting our writers um, so that whenever we have a new review coming out we are able to pay those writers just a little bit for their hard work um but yeah, patreon.com slash cinematary. Please consider uh, consider it as a donation. And uh, if you're wanting to support the website or the podcast, this is the best way to do it, along with the bevy of other ways, you know, such as writing and reviewing and all those good things. Sharing the podcast on social media helps as well. Um, but I have talked way too much. I am rambling. Let's go ahead. And this is our most recent film theory and chill and a nice little teaser for those who have not listened to it before. I uh, hope you like it. Thanks for listening. And welcome to our latest Film Theory and Chill here on the Cinematary Patreon page. I'm Zach Dennis. I'm here with Nathan and Andrew. And we are here to to talk about the evolution of film language, which is such a nice... Which, what a way to, you know, enter this conference. We're going to talk about the evolution of film language. And then the, if you hear that noise, it's everybody clicking the, the podcast thing off and are like, yeah, we're going to listen to like whoever Marin's talking about, you know, talking to you this week. Um, this is our first Andre Bazin uh, episode, which I think could probably, uh, you know, should have been. It's still pretty early in this year, you know, in this whole thing. So I think we're OK. But it's, it's one of the guys that you probably should hit on pretty pretty early uh, in in film theory because he's somebody that probably people come across not only in like theory specific classes but just like general film history courses um he, I, he we had to do the one about schwarzenegger first though so. we we have to knock that one out i mean come on please um yeah I'm, nathan i'm gonna toss it over to you real quickly just to kind of give a backstory on bazin because like i said he's somebody that even you know casual cinephiles probably are aware of just because of his relationship to the French New Wave. Yeah, I mean he's a <clears throat> a name that I think like you said people definitely hear a lot. He pops up in a lot of 
books and you know, studies of French cinema and European cinema, um, and somebody who had a very like I think tangible impact on the direction of just like cinema very on a very broad level. Um, he started. He was born in France in 1918 and started writing film criticism in the 1940s. He was one of the co-founders of Cahiers du Cinema in 1951, which if you know about the French New Wave, then you probably know about Cahiers du Cinema or at least have heard of it. You know, this like very long running formative French film publication, which is still going on today, not quite as influential and uh, read and hotly debated and discussed as it might have been in another time. But, you know, that is a publication that all of these French New Wave guys started at. Um, Godard and Truffaut and Rivette and Romare, all of them started off as critics at Cahiers du Cinema and then eventually started making films. And Andrew, uh, Andre Bazin is kind of the godfather of all of that. You know, he was not a filmmaker himself, unlike the sort of uh, critical children that he, he fathered. But um, he really, I think, shaped how those guys viewed the seventh art and um, some of their ideas. Uh, he Do you know is, how he knew all those people? Was it through academia, like in a college setting? or No. Um, something that I think is pretty distinct about Byzan is that he was he was a total autodidact. You know, he was not an academic or a scholar really at all. He was just like totally self-taught, self-trained um, and. And they all met kind of through the Cinematheque, um, which is still a theater in Paris today. The, the film museum that um, was kind of funded by the French government uh, was run by uh, Henry Langlois, who was like a sort of cultural minister basically over cinema who owned this private museum of artifacts and whatnot that then became a public institution. And it was also a big repertory house and kind of the birth place of auteurism a little bit um, just because, you know, once World War II ended uh, and the Marshall Plan was instituted by the U.S. to try to help fund the rebuilding of Europe, you had all of these American movies coming to French theaters, playing, you know, year, the year, the, the whole backlog of movies that kind of built up during World War II. So you're having all these John Ford movies in a row, Howard Hawks movies in a row. We've talked about auteurism in the past. So if you're listening, you guys probably know this story, but you know, this is where the sort of ideas that Kaye really innovates and develops come out of. So like I said, I think the thing that's kind of distinct about Bazan is that he's not, a, you know, part of the institution. He's not a real like, you know, professional academic, which his writings have been super, super influential and are still read in film theory classes up to this day. But I do think that he's somebody who has been very unpopular at certain times in cinema studies because there's I think, you know, the writing is dense, but I think there are some ways where you can tell he's maybe not an academic because it gets really poetic and it gets very like passionate and personal sometimes. I mean, I was just and so, saying to Zach before you came on Discord, Nathan, that I found this really surprisingly readable. I was expecting it to be this impenetrable academic philosophical text, and it was not that. 
Yeah, exactly. So I think that because of that, um, there are times where people are like, oh, this isn't rigorous enough or this isn't, you know, thorough enough. But also, I think they're just kind of the very ideas of themselves are, are, are maybe really popular in, in certain small, tight circles. But by and large, I think a lot of the way that people think about movies pop popularly doesn't quite jive with Bazan's ideas so much anymore. Um <laughs> which I guess is just maybe a point to just start getting into this chapter um, because I think the, the, just the, the controversial thing a little bit with him is just like the idea of reality and the idea of realism and that the relationship of those things to cinema, um, which is maybe where we can get into the specifics of this chapter. Okay. I'm curious to hear what that controversy is. I mean, getting, Getting into this piece, whenever he brought up things like neorealism or the capability of cinema to uh, depict or represent reality, um, it never came across as anything that didn't, you know, seem to make common sense to me. But I guess we can get into it. So the the uh, the piece kind of opens up with him kind of just introducing where. <laughs> Pretty much where we are in movies at this point in time. Uh, what he wrote this in is oh, wait, it fifty? No, fifty. It look well. It's a it's a it's a it's a synthesis yeah. of three articles. So it's it's it happened in the fifties um, at, at some point. So yeah. I guess we should also mention that it's a chapter in uh, What is Cinema, which is his like most famous volume, just all of his like major kind of collected writings. Um, Anyway, so the, the, this was this came from at some point in the fifties, either fifty two, fifty five, or fifty, um, and he's just kind of doing a little bit of a recap of of where we're at with movies and how, how movies have transitioned uh, from the silent age to the sound age, and what that has left, uh, at least in his uh, concept or idea of of what cinema is. Um, I think, kind of speaking to your point, Nathan, I think a good point part that we could kind of jump off on is it's in the third paragraph, which I kind of find to be the, the last one into the, that before it jumps into the actual piece. And it's the, it's the last line where he's, uh, you know, again, breaking all of this down. And he says that, uh, that there are two, uh, there were two opposing schools in the cinema from 1920 to 1940. And he, he views them as directors who believed in the image and then those who believed in reality. Um, and for the rest of the piece, he's kind of, uh, breaking those two things down, but I'm curious, uh, what you all kind of made of that, of that, uh, kind of separation between the two directors is because I, I, for one was really, that's been something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is, uh, directors who are like working within the kind of dreamlike state of movie making, and then those directors who are like so bent on just portraying this realistic portrait, um, and how people have really seemed to re- people. It's weird that people, the general public, responds more. They, they feel like their movies should be a reflection of reality than like these dreamlike vehicles, which just seems. I think. It just seems like foreign and absurd to me, but I'm curious what you all think. Yeah, I mean, this is a little bit later, and I'm, not, I'm trying to find the exact paragraph where he talks about it, but, um, I mean, German Expressionism is an obvious um, 
point of connection here as uh, filmmakers who, for the most part, believed in the the quote unquote the image uh, over reality. Uh, though he does later talk about um, Murnau as somebody who doesn't necessarily manipulate reality in the same way that you see in like Caligari. Um, he's uh, as he says, he's like bringing out the deeper structure of reality through um, shadows and, and uh, camera placement and things like that. Well, and he's talking about how he kind of because uh, he brings up Murnau when he's talking specifically of like breaking down editing. And I think he he uh, he he juxtaposes the Murnau and German expressionism with uh, Russian you know, montage Eisenstein editing and how Murnau like limits the edits in his movies. Um, well, I think the, like one of the interesting phrases that he uses a lot, both especially in this piece, but he uses it elsewhere in his writing too, is this phrase plastics, which is basically mise-en-scene. You know, he never says mise-en-scene. He just says plastics, which I think really maybe for me really emphasizes that difference between image and reality where, you know, the word plastic just sort of implies like artificial. um, And so I think that the image filmmakers, maybe the difference is that they view film as like something inherently artificial that you can just like manipulate um, and and is not you know it, it maybe starts in reality but the finished product is something totally distinct whereas the filmmakers who aren't really uh, so interested in the plastics and aren't as interested in montage either are, are sort of interested in cinema's capability to literally capture you know what's in front of it and capture life and uh, so I think that's like the when I said you know sometimes Bazan is kind of controversial for people I think it's that's the difference is that I think it's maybe something people don't think about actively all the time but I think a lot of times just broadly culturally people just sort of take film and also television and other moving image media as something that's just like totally artificial and something that's just like a pure construct and doesn't really have any root or grounding in reality anymore. And I think Bazan, you know, it's for him, cinema has this unique ability to uh, capture and, and recreate reality. Um, and it's not necessarily artificial all the time. That's interesting. Um, I guess I didn't read it as him sort of taking a side um, one over the other, but I can kind of see that, uh, especially with his praising of um, Wells and Weiler at the end of this piece. But uh, in the fourth paragraph, uh, to go back to your point about plasticity, he says, by image, I mean, in general sense, anything that can be added to a depicted object. And he says, the plasticity of the image and the resources of editing, um, or it can be traced back to two factors, the plasticity of the image and the resources of editing. And then on the website where we viewed this, there's this screen grab of a Eisenstein film, The General Line which I've never seen that is a really beautiful image posed like a giant ghostly uh, bull kind of floating above them which I, I suppose is the an example of a very plastic artificial image um, 
And so, so I, Nathan, I guess you're saying that he is sort of in favor of moving away from obviously mm-hmm. artificial images like that. I think what it is is um, because I think that you're right to say that he doesn't really pick a side necessarily because I do think he does favor this sort of like capturing of reality. But there's also some inconsistencies in his taste. Like he does like, you know, Eisenstein, who seems kind of opposed to this idea of reality, objective reality. And I mean, even, you know, even though Wells is known for innovating deep focus, I think there are other things, a lot of other things about Wells' style that like totally don't jive with that at all. So I think what it is, is it comes down to like more almost sometimes not so much the like image itself being artificial, but like, or, or manipulated, I think is a better word. Like it comes down not to the image being manipulated, but like the audience being manipulated. You know, I think he really doesn't like when a filmmaker really overtly directs an audience's focus and or leads them to one clear idea. He's really invested, I think, in like a very ambiguous view of cinema. This starts to get into like some of the kind of paragraphs and pages right after the, the, the opening that we've been talking about, but he starts to like precisely define montage and, and define different types of montage. And he starts to say that, you know, that like the, the, his issue kind of with montage is how it just leads you to like one meaning, one interpretation, one definition, um, as opposed to like, and this is kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but as opposed to like deep, focus which just sort of gives you all of the information on the same level and doesn't necessarily direct your attention to one object or symbol and uh, to jump kind of ahead and backwards a little bit at the same time um, in the second the second paragraph is really where I see him sort of laying out the aims of the piece um, he, he talks about how people often think of the split the historical split between sound cinema and silent cinema as like this this the biggest paradigm shift in cinema history but he is of the opinion that things more or less stayed the same with the advent of sound in terms of the way that people were creating images and editing them together it was more later in the 40s with people like Wells and Weiler who introduced ideas like deep focus that we started to um, really reconstruct our idea of how um, films communicated um, narrative to us. Um, But uh, another thing that, that stuck out at me before we get into the deep focus stuff is when he's going through all these editing styles, you know, the, the Soviet montage and then uh, D.W. Griffith's parallel editing, which, of course, you know, there are, there are other uh, precedents for parallel editing um, around the same time and before D.W. Griffith's. But he, he mentions that, like, just, um, just thinking about silent cinema in terms of these, these couple forms, the only thing about editing in, in these categories is sort of a ignoring um, other more more free-floating editing styles. And he brings up Nanook of the North, um, where uh, you see like an entire... Um, I haven't seen Nanook of the North, so I'm not sure exactly what shot he's talking about, um, but one fishing shot that is 
you know, it, it plays out in real time. It's very, very long. Um, and I remember watching an interview with Chantelle Ackerman um, where she, she talked about like fall, her falling in love with cinema kind of goes back to Nanook of the North, um, which, I mean, you can kind of just, just in business description of it, you can kind of see uh, how Ackerman kind of like pioneered this, this slow cinema style out of that. Um, yeah. I mean, so, that's exactly- yeah, there's these different strains of, of editing that we often don't think about back to the sound. I mean, that's exactly like, you know, you, I was exactly going to just bring up slow cinema because I think you see here like sort of the groundwork for that being laid where, you know, he literally says like, wouldn't it, you know, isn't it much more moving in Nanook of the North to like let that duration play out than to just imply it through montage, Um, which I think that sort of this like investment in reality and in the real, like being able to capture the, the real experience of time is like a very key to the idea of slow cinema. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I was also thinking about, I guess, I guess we're, we're jumping into the, the deep focus stuff that he talks about later with Wells and, um, Weiler. Um, but in these, these sections of the essay where he's talking about showing these multifaceted images and kind of like letting the audience's eyes just sort of work through them without being directed by editing and, and camera angles. Um, I was, I was thinking about uh, slow cinema and I was also thinking about Jacques Tati's playtime, um, which I guess specifically when thinking about this Weiler image he brings up, he talks about this uh, shot from a William Weiler film where on the right side of the frame uh, in the foreground, you're seeing uh, a man play the piano, but on the left side of the frame way in the background, you're seeing a woman in a phone booth. And uh, because of... that's the real action. Like that's what you're supposed to be emotionally invested in. And, and, and so like your attention is drawn back there, but the camera is not following her back there. It's stuck right in front of the guy playing the piano. So it kind of takes some, uh, mental visual work on your part to kind of like keep your attention back there. Um, and he even talks about how, um, you, you need the, you need the counterpoint. Like the frame needs to be completely balanced for this to work, which I think, you know, later experiments in, in slow cinema and things like Jock Tati did with playtime, uh, try to refute that. I mean, I, I guess a lot of people would say that, uh, Bazin was right because they find that stuff unbearably boring. But, uh, I, I mean, there, there are so many examples of films that like they, they just kind of like let, let things play out all across the frame and rely on the audience to kind of track whatever they find interesting um but i again like playtime is the prime example yeah i I mean i think i i agree that people um especially like with something like playtime they might find it boring and may not invest in the the deep focus technique that um he brings up with the best years of our lives the weiler film um but i think it's 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 kind of a a point of uh it depends on what 
you know movie it is i mean scorsese is not uh opposed to to doing this and you know things like uh goodfellas and casino and um these gangster pictures i mean that he he, he uses similar uh you know editing and, and camera techniques as bazin is talking about here in those movies um which i felt fine i think people would just would be much more um agreeable to than than trying to describe why uh uh you know tati in the background slipping on something is is incredibly entertaining while something's happening in the foreground um and i think that's it's all up to um i guess the uh i kind of going back to the point and i guess maybe this is a disagreement with bazin but just the the manipulation that the director is performing because um I mean, at the at the at the end of the day, uh, we're <laughs> regardless of what you know, even some in something like Nanook of the North, we're still being manipulated by the director to see what they want us to see, and so it's kind. Of, I think that that's kind of that's what that's the interesting thing is in any of these cases, whether it's um, kind of that that deep realism or it's a much more like stylized obsessed with the image version. I, 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 I find both interesting just because it's like, it's two different ways to It's, it's like, which way do you want to manipulate the audience? Do you want to mani- ma- manipulate them in this way? But it's weird because it's like, we kind of can put the, the realism because we're like, Oh no, they're presenting it. I'm like, yeah, but they're presenting what they want you to see. It's still, it's still manipulation. And I think that the, the yeah. Yes. Like, on the one hand, the, the like, editing heavy manipulation is is kind of like... I've been thinking about, uh, Nathan, your Hotbox of Cinema episode on theme park cinema. It's kind of like being on a, a roller coaster and, like, the director taking you in all these places they want to take you for in rapid succession, whereas the, the Nanook of the North Chantal Ackerman style is more like kind of strapping you down. Uh, like, in my in my most recent video essay, I, I connected it to the, the image of... Um, uh, Oh God! What's the what's the kid's name? A- Alex in Clockwork Orange being being strapped down and forced to watch something like that is also a form of manipulation. It's just a more static form of manipulation, forcing you into stasis. Well, I think that um, it starts to get into you know it's maybe less about the image itself or at least like Bazan's interest in reality is less about the image itself and is more about like a certain sensibility or like a kind of emotional honesty or something like that or some kind of fidelity to to how people live um because I don't know, like one of the really interesting passages for me is when he's talking, he's going through this, like just sort of, you know, in the middle of the, the essay when he's just going through this history of the past few decades of cinema, um, he is saying that, you know, like the real kind of revolution between 1940 and 1950 in cinema is less on the level of style than it is subject. Um, and he says is not near realism primarily a kind of humanism and only secondarily a style of filmmaking then as to the style itself is it not essentially a form of self-effacement before reality so i think some his thing is like what you know films feel somehow like authentic to 
to real life, you know, like because all of these films are still manipulating you. But I think it comes down to just like a certain expression of feeling. I don't know exactly like what that feeling is, but I think it maybe just comes down to like seeing a film and like knowing that it feels really dishonest and cynical um, because there's a way that, you know, a, a film can be like aware of that manipulation and play around with that. But does it to like lead you to some productive place as opposed to just like trying to produce a pure hollow sensation? Um, I don't know. It's weird. It's like it's it's it's. On the one hand, like he's, you know, Andrew, like you said, way more accessible than a lot of like real academic kind of theory. But it's also sometimes like he does kind of not exactly. For. Yeah, it's like the kind of exact sensation that he's talking about or the exact kind of cinema. It's like it's still a little bit slippery and hard to like pin down exactly what it is. I mean, I didn't when in my read through, I wasn't thinking of it as an argument much at all. I mean, I thought of it more as like a description of, you know, historical trends um, as, as opposed to kind of like pitting two different things against each other. And again, like picking a side. Um, Well, I think it's, it, it's just like real quick. It just like goes along with the kind of interest in deep focus. Like he's not, it's not like he's not really doing like a montage kind of argument, you know, a kind of like, here's the two sides. He's doing more just like, here are all the options and all these tendencies. And you can kind of just like reach your own conclusion of which are the valuable, worthwhile ones and which ones aren't. One of the more argumentative, prescriptive claims he makes seems to me to be in the paragraph right after what you were just reading, uh, where this is after he's talking about um, the the 1940s uh, film revolution is being is more about subject matter than style, and he's kind of presenting that like as a counterclaim, like this is this is what some people might say. Um, and then in the next paragraph, uh, he talks about um, it is cer- it is certainly not my intention to champion some supposed superiority of form over content, but. Uh, new wine should not be put into old bottles. And one way of understanding better what a film is trying to say is to know how it is saying it. And so that that comparison to putting wine in bottles seems, I mean, it almost sounds like something that uh, like Godard would say, of course, as somebody who like studied under the sky, like that we should be innovating in cinema no matter what, Direction that innovation goes in, right? And uh, the the purpose of doing the critical work he's doing is not necessarily to say what is better or what is worse, but just to understand how it works. Um, which it to me is like as good a um, a case as any for like why we're right? even reading this yeah. stuff in the first place. I mean, I mean, I agree with that because it's kind of it's 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 like why. You know, we have this discussion uh, over and over again with different movies where it's because you hit this thing where it's like, oh, you know, whatever is just this, but kind of redressed. And you're like, yeah, but um, I guess for a good example. So you have something like Knives Out, which comes out comes out this year. It's not revolutionary in any way, Um, (laughs) but it's but it's redressing a thing that we've seen before and at least a, a dress that is 
pertinent for 2019, 2020, um, that at least takes, it's a subject, it's a subject matter, uh, innovation, not a formal. Exactly. And it's still, and it still tries to utilize formal stuff, but you're like, I think that that, like, that's how you should be making the movies. Of course, it's not an innovative, it's not some innovative, like we're going to be talking about this in film classes, et cetera, et cetera. But if we're going to be continuing to churn out stuff in the system while you're in the system, at least don't just be churning out the same product. At least try to do something different with it, um, which I think is a very is, is maybe a callous way of, of assessing what he's saying right here. But I think it applies. Whereas something like Long Day's Journey into Night, for example, might be putting new wine into new bottles. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you, I what think about you, old you, wine and new bottles. Maybe that's good too. Just have any How really any wine at all. <laughs> Coppola wine, you know, packing, packing old weed in a new You know, bowl. maybe, maybe Long Day's Journey Tonight would be old wine in new bottles because it's this uh, almost rote noir plot for the first uh, hour and a half, but done in this very strange way. I mean, the last part is different, yeah. but anyways, we can move <laughs> on. Uh, I feel... <laughs> And there's, yeah. but there's nothing. But I, the the point of it is, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what we need to be doing. That's fine because, of course, you're not gonna, you know, you're not really gonna like reinvent the wheel every, you know, every year. So if you're gonna at least have to do stuff, at least try I feel to like do we something are, with it. Are kind yeah. of approaching the end of the main points in this essay, to be honest. Um, but one quote that I wanted to throw out before we, uh, you know, got to the conclusion section is, um, he gives a quote from, uh, Renoir, uh, and Renoir says, the longer I work in my profession, the more I am drawn to mise-en-scene and depth in relation to the screen. The more I do that, the more I'm able to avoid the confrontation of two actors who stand like good boys in front of the camera as though they were at the photographers. <laughs> um... Which is is interesting. I mean, it, it kind of makes me think about um, one of the points I made in my video essay about kind of getting tired of the the rapid fire editing of like shot reverse shot conversations when you're used to when you, when you uh, kind of like become attuned to seeing them play out more organically in slow cinema, um, but he's kind of taking it one step further than that and not just saying. You know, we should be patient and willing to watch a scene play out, but we should be interested in watching multiple scenes play out in the same frame. Uh, like that, that's the, the standard he's setting. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think that like Renoir is kind of the like prototypical Byzantian filmmaker, maybe because he. I don't know. When I think about like a Renoir movie, a lot of the times it's like a, I feel like it's kind of a filmmaking that like resists screenshots a little bit because so much of it is just in this kind of like not rapid motion, but just continuous fluid motion. Like something like rules of the game. I think it really exemplifies what Bazin is interested in because it's very much committed to like being true to kind of both spatial, but also, um, emotional relationships between people, but it's not static. You know, the camera is like always kind of roaming and, uh, moving around and 
it's not just like okay put the camera down nanook of the north style and just like document it it the camera is very much a camera and is like not a, a, a rooted to some like real perspective but in that um, in that just that motion, I guess, and that kind of movement and embracing that part of cinema um, as opposed to like montage, which sort of requires every image to just like be a little discrete image that can be paired with another image. Um, you know, Renoir is just like, let's just kind of flow, I guess. Yeah. Flow is a word that was coming to mind when you were uh, working through that. Um to throw out another couple of quotes um, to and, and to connect to your point about like a camera that is a camera and is like sort of um, in imbuing like a will upon the scene or imbuing meaning into the scene near, near the end of the piece. Um, Bazin says, the spectator has only to follow the gaze of the characters like a pointing finger, and you will have an exact understanding of all the intentions of the director. And skipping ahead a little bit, he says, every point of dramatic articulation is so sensitive that a shift of a few degrees in the angle of somebody's gaze is not only quite obvious to the most obtuse spectator, but is also capable through a kind of leverage of turning a whole scene upside down. Um, And in this conclusion section, he starts to use the word gaze a whole lot. Um... Basically just saying that, like, the perspective that we are viewing things from is going to affect the meaning that we are drawing from it, so a director's job is important. Uh, He also doesn't pass any value judgments on any individual um, decisions in, like, in terms of how a gaze is constructed. Um, he, He even says, it would be beyond the scope of this article to analyze the psychological repercussions of this relationship, um, which made me think that uh, it would probably make sense to uh, to follow this one up with uh, the male gaze next week or next oh, yeah, month. Yeah, yeah, that would, yeah, that would be so, a good maybe. connection. I would also love to get Paige in that episode because she talked so much about this in the uh, episode you guys did about the handmaiden. Um, I think it would be interesting to like kind of like go back to the source and and parse through that. Yeah, that is such a weird essay to go back to because like. <laughs> It only uses the male gaze like as a phrase once or twice. And there's all this like, you know, all the fun psychoanalytic stuff that like nobody has patience for any anymore. Uh, But it's still kind of fun to mess around with. So you may have anything else about this essay before we wrap up and chill. Let me see if there's anything I have any quotes I've underlined that to read. I don't the, the kind of takeaway that I that I had from it was is it just really vibed with stuff that I've been thinking about a lot lately when it comes to when it, when it relates to like how what our relationship is with the narrative on screen. I was uh, thinking thinking recently about how how much more rigid people are when it comes to assessing um like the realism or just what's happening on a screen, whether it's television or movies um, and like what the characters are, are partaking in rather than like they're completely less rigid in that regard. And just real life, like in real life, it's just like, yeah, you can get by with so much stuff, but it's like, yeah, but like, are we going to let uh, uncut gyms get by because he said, turn on ESPN. And then it was TNT because I, I can't let that happen. You know, it's, (laughs) 
it's 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 like these tiny details that people like grab hold on with stuff and you're just like that's 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 not the ultimate point that's of like not why how we're watching the this thing. Is being constructed right? exactly and so I, I i appreciated this essay because it kind of uh it kind of verbalizes a lot of the techniques and ways of mean of manipulation that uh film has that is like yeah this is this is how you should be processing this, this is kind of how you you, sh- you sh- what you should be using the process uh this stuff you shouldn't be holding it to these uh you know absurd checklist um checklists that are based in reality because i mean i know again maybe this is a this is a disagreement with bazin but i'm just kind of like uh even in the neorealist um examples that he gives he, he mentions rossellini's uh germany year zero and uh De Sica's bicycle thieves um there are elements in those that remind you why it's a movie um even when they are supposed to be these like deeply realistic portrayals of, of things like um these these techniques of editing these tech the, this this use of uh the kind of the composition of the shot like all of that stuff is still in play even though it's this realistic um uh, portrayal of a story um and i think i don't know it's just something that that people kind of neglect that i don't really feel like is that weighty or that like heady of a topic to kind of think about while you're watching movies i think that that's just like that should just kind of be like yeah that, like that's how you should think about movies you should think about movies in terms of them being movies um i don't know that might be irrelevant to this entire conversation that's i just wanted to get that off my chest no i, I completely agree that's all I have. I recently had a, a Twitter beef with a student who was trying to um, trying to argue that Moonlight wasn't good because it didn't present enough facts about the uh, the you know the the heavy and important issues that it was dealing with. And this is coming from like a very uh, you know progressive quote unquote liberal student who's like at least posturing is like. It, it cons- concerned about you know the the black experience or the gay experience or whatever, but like saying that the movie needs more information in it doesn't make it like that would not make it a better movie, right? Like it's the the construction of the movie as a movie as a as a series of like evocative images that makes it a good movie. So just just to speak to your point, Zach, I totally agree. Nathan, did you find any quotes that you wanted to point out? Um, yeah, there's one line I really like. The meaning is not in the image. It is in the shadow of the image projected by montage onto the field of consciousness of the spectator. Also, I just one of my favorite little lines in all of film theory. Uh, the German school did every kind of violence to the plastics of the image. Just love that expression. Every kind of violence to the plastics of the image. Great phrase. <laughs> That's a great phrase. Byzan was a poet and he didn't even know it. I'm choosing to interpret yeah. violence with a positive connotation in this book. Oh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Just kind of an aggressive yeah. mess. You the know. Germans have some negative violence, but this is yeah. a positive violence. <laughs> Cool. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll link this up. This is a, honestly a relatively breezy short one yeah. for, you know, compared to a lot of the ones. So if you have, you know, if you want to read it, it's it's available and we'll link it in the Patreon page so that you can check it out. <laughs>